You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hi, everyone. It's Sophia. Welcome to Work in Progress. This is the first episode in our four-part mini-series, Well and Good, which focuses on all things sustainability. I'm eager to share with all of you what I've learned over the past month from our four incredible guests that we handpicked for this special series. And for those of you that go way back with the pod, you might remember today's guest, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. If you haven't heard the episode from when we first spoke, it came out in June of 2020, and I strongly encourage you to go back and check it out because she is hands down one of the most brilliant women that I know. Ayana is an inspiring, driven, and incredibly wise doctor of marine biology. She is a policy expert, a writer, and a conservation strategist who was educated at Harvard and Scripps Institute of Oceanography. More recently, she co-wrote The Blue New Deal, a roadmap for including the ocean in climate policy, and she published her first book, All We Can Save, which is an anthology of writing by women climate leaders. I was actually honored to be selected to be one of the women who read two of the essays in the audiobook. So you can check it out in hardcover, paperback, or audio. Today we talk about how Dr. Ayana came up with the Blue New Deal and how the ocean can actually be part of the solution to the climate crisis while also creating more opportunities for jobs and sustainable farming. I was truly blown away by the facts that she drops in this episode and it made me feel so inspired for what lies ahead of us. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome back to the show Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. I am so very excited that my friend and inspiration and author and activist and marine biologist and policy expert, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, is back for a second time on Work in Progress. Hi, friend. Thanks for coming on season Hi, two. Hi, Sophia. Thanks for having me back. 
Great to see you. I really miss being able to give you a hug. What a year. (laughs) We were all wondering what this new illness, COVID-19, meant. Where was it moving? We were in New York. Mm -hmm. We knew it had arrived. It's it's just so crazy to think about what's happened in the last year. Mm -hmm. And truly, it only reinforces for me the reason that we're all so passionate about climate, the reason that we talk about how interconnected we are. There really is no such thing for science, for an illness, no such thing as a border, um, no such thing as a different place. The the planet exists as one giant ecosystem. And my hope is that this year will really, for so many people, illuminate the importance of taking care of it holistically, taking Mm -hmm. care of it Mm -hmm. in totality and finding climate solutions that are really rooted in justice and equity and feels like a big job. There's a lot of work to do, as it turns out. Yeah. And I think what I've seen a lot of in the last year, and I bet you can relate to this too, is people are like very deeply appreciating nature and the outdoors in a way that a lot of us hadn't been before, right? People are flocking to Mm -hmm. parks and to hiking and getting more into gardening or vegetables Mm -hmm. or whatever the thing is, like anything to connect with nature and life and the world beyond Mm -hmm. our walls. People have gotten into bird watching and all of these cool things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really do hope that that leads to a greater appreciation for the need to protect these things that have given us so much comfort and solace during such a difficult time. Yeah. The silver linings of this year for me have been exactly what you've said. The hikes to the middle of nowhere, the the moments alone, you know, or, or just with my pod in the desert, raising my chickens and growing my garden. It's It's really been such a reminder that those are the things that keep us full and safe. And I I really want to get into the work that you've been doing, especially in the last year, two years, because when you did come on in season one, we were talking about the, the book coming out and your work on the Blue New Deal with the Urban Ocean Lab, which you are the founder of. I want to focus on that with you today, and uh, I will let our listeners know, anyone who's newer here to the podcast and maybe didn't hear your first episode, generally, as you know by now, I like to go backwards with guests before we get into present day. But as we mentioned, our last conversation in person was talking for well over two hours for (laughs) season one of the podcast. So we're going to go backwards a little bit with you in some information that I won't make you repeat because you did it for me once already. And that's for all of the new listeners who didn't get to know you in season one. And for everyone else who did, listen again because your story is fascinating and I'm still obsessed with your parents. Uh, (laughs) Me too, for what it's worth. They're pretty cool. I mean, pretty unbelievable. Also, pictures from your mom's farm make my day always, so keep them coming. But to be respectful of your time, let's focus on what's going on right now. Yeah. Uh, especially where climate justice, climate solutions, and politics intersect. Mm -hmm. You did incredible work with the primary candidates for the 2020 election. Climate policy that you were helping to advise became central to now President Biden's climate policy proposals, which we were screaming about on text messages and and (laughs) incredibly, incredibly thrilled about. Can you talk about what it's like 
as a marine biologist, as yeah. the founder of a lab meant to study the protections of our oceans, to have the opportunity to do work with presidential candidates, to, to do work on policy proposals that could unlock a new climate future. Mm, well, that is a very generous way to phrase the question, so thank you. I think it's instructive to like share a little bit of the story of how this concept of a Blue New Deal came to be. So mm. for many people have heard of the Green New Deal, and the Green New Deal was a, a resolution introduced in Congress by Representative Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey. So they introduced this resolution, basically laying out a framework, a vision for what federal climate policy could look like, all the different elements that it would include. And a lot of that was focused on how to take care of people in the transition to a regenerative economy. And a lot of people have very strong opinions on that document without having read it. So if there are people listening who are curious, like what is actually in there, I'll say it's only 13 pages, double-spaced, pretty large font. It'll take you like five minutes to read it. And I think that's mm. a worthwhile five minutes to spend because there are things to discuss, right? Like, is this the way we want to do it? Um, is this the way we want to see the problem? What are the groups we need to support? How do we take care of farmers or people who are working in the fossil fuel industry now and are going to need different opportunities? Mm. How do we take care of people's health as we're tr transitioning jobs so dramatically, right? So a lot of these issues are wrapped up together and the Green New Deal mm. tries to put forward a way to address these intertwined challenges at the level of the federal government. So when I spent my five minutes reading that, I got to page you know, 10, I think, and I looked at it and I saw the first mention of the ocean. And it was just in a list of like things we should protect, include, and you know, the ocean and a bunch of other things listed, which made me think, what a missed opportunity. Like we are just not gonna mm. get there unless we include the ocean as a part of our solutions, right? Because people think about the ocean as a victim of the climate crisis. We think about maybe, um, you know, fish, the water being too warm for fish that are moving towards the poles. We think about coral reefs bleaching um, and the effects of them being too hot. Maybe if you're more of an ocean nerd, you think about ocean acidification, which is the result of all the carbon dioxide the ocean has absorbed, which is about 30% mm -hmm. of what we've emitted by burning fossil fuels. Um, so you might be thinking about all the ways in which the ocean is harmed by climate change, mm. but the ocean is also very much a hero of the story, right? It's absorbed all this carbon mm. dioxide. It's absorbed over 90% of the heat we've trapped with greenhouse gases. Renewable energy offshore, like wind turbines in particular, could be powering coastal cities across the world. Regenerative farming can wow. happen in the ocean with seaweeds and shellfish. Coastal ecosystems like wetlands and mangroves can physically protect us from storm surges while absorbing tons of carbon and providing habitat for juveniles of different species um, that, we, that may be supporting food security and certainly ecosystem health more generally. There's all of these opportunities 
for the ocean to be a major part of our climate solution to provide lots of jobs in in shipping and mm. offshore energy and farming and fishing like why would we ignore that and of course mm. i'm not the only ocean nerd who read the green new deal resolution and was like there's something missing here and so with two <laughs> colleagues we put our heads together and we thought like well what would it look like to include the ocean in federal climate policy and mm. that's where the concept of a blue new deal came from it as this complementary proposal to the green new deal um, and it includes those things I listed. It includes renewable energy offshore, includes regenerative farming of the ocean. It includes protecting and restoring coastal ecosystems. How do we deal with shipping and ports in a, in a transition off of fossil fuels? All of these things. How do we deal with mm -hmm. fisheries management as species start to move towards cooler waters? There's just like a lot that we need to think about. And mm -hmm. so an op-ed became a policy memo, became a plan with Elizabeth Warren's campaign. And elements of that were included in Biden's climate plan. And they're now being considered as part of federal climate policy now that we have a new administration in the White House and new people running federal agencies. And to me, this, this evolution of the idea of a Blue New Deal is so exciting and important because it, sh it shows that like, mm there really aren't gatekeepers in the way that we think there are, right? Like no one in, no one was like, Ayana, what do you think? I, I said <laughs> like, hey, friends, colleagues, like there's something missing here. What should we do about it? Let's write an op-ed about this. Let's start to put together the economic case for this. Let's start to raise our voices. Mm. Let's ask about this in a CNN town hall to the primary candidates. And Elizabeth Warren received the question, you know, would you support a Blue New Deal? And she was like, this seems like a great idea. You know, being in a coastal state, right, representing Massachusetts, mm -hmm. she understood the importance of our coastal economy. And next thing you know, her staff is yeah. calling me because, you know, their boss had just agreed to a, a whole new plan, a Blue New Deal plan on national television. And so I got to help them put that together. So I think, to me, it's instructive of, how we can just show up and raise our hands and be helpful. We don't need to wait to be invited. Mm -hmm. We can just see where we can be useful. And then also that it's important yep. to carry these ideas forward regardless of who's in charge, right? This wasn't about a particular yeah. think tank or a particular um, presidential campaign. This was about like what needs to happen who are the people that need to get around the table? How do we think this through together and mm. carry those ideas forward? And so that was such a joy to get to be a part of the, the various teams that worked on that. And, and I'll certainly still be advocating for those policies to be put into place um, through the Biden administration's work. It's so cool. And really such a reminder that we have to do this for us, regardless mm -hmm. of who's in charge, the best idea should always win. Mm. And I, I do hope that moving forward, that truth, that the best idea and the best outcomes for us as a society should be the non-negotiable bedrock of our politics. That would be a great um, place to start. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be so great? <laughs> That'd be delightful. Um, 
One of the things that strikes me as so cool about you beginning to explain what the Blue New Deal is all about is when you're talking about, you know, shipping and offshore energy production and farming and all of these things that can happen in the ocean, you're talking about jobs. Absolutely. And there's this misnomer that's been peddled by the the GOP that um, anything, you know, eco or energy efficient or having to do with the Green New Deal will mean the end of jobs, but actually it means massive job creation. Absolutely. It means massive opportunities for people, including the folks you mentioned, folks who work in really dangerous fossil fuel industries to be transitioned into jobs that are safer, healthier, and pay them more. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to some of the jobs that could happen in and on the ocean yeah. that people may not be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm so glad that you see that framing. I think the first time I heard President Biden say, when I think of climate change, I think of jobs. I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. all right, let's do this. Um, right? Because there are so many opportunities. And in fact, the fossil fuel mm-hmm. industry, jobs in the fossil fuel industry have been declining. They were laying off people despite getting huge support um, from the federal government during the the recession, um, while renewable energy companies were still hiring, right? The Mm -hmm. cost of solar and wind is now competitive with fossil fuels, if not less expensive. The transition is happening regardless. So we need to stop subsidizing dirty energy and start supporting clean energy. It's already winning. And if we, at the very least, eliminate fossil fuel subsidies, that would accelerate the transition dramatically. And the Biden administration has committed to that as a policy priority. So we'll see how Mm. that continues to to shift and roll out. But I think with, with the ocean in particular, how do we think about farming the ocean and all of the coastal jobs that can come from growing seaweed and shellfish, which absorb tons of carbon, and they don't need fresh water, and they don't need fertilizer, right? They don't need to be fed. Mm. They're just living off of sunlight and nutrients in the water, which is an incredibly sustainable way to grow food. And so that is a great opportunity, and lots of jobs all up and down the coast. We can think of this as like the opportunity for so many small businesses, and then all of the businesses, not just on the water, but you know, supporting the boats that are used and processing the oysters and scallops and mussels and, and kelp that are coming ashore. How are we making those into food or burgers or fertilizer or cosmetics, right? Like all of the products that need to be produced and then transported and packaged wow. and sold and marketed, right? There's a whole value chain there of job opportunities just around regenerative ocean farming, let alone think about the same thing for offshore wind and all the engineers doing the designs and all the construction workers building Mm -hmm. them and maintaining them and people managing the transition in our electricity grid and the boats that are going out Mm -hmm. there and back and the restaurants that are feeding the workers, right? Like there's all of these um, opportunities there. And I'm so glad that you are questioning this false dichotomy between jobs and a strong economy and addressing the climate crisis. Because the truth is, if we do not address the climate crisis, we are screwed, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we're dealing with ever more extreme weather events from fires to floods to droughts to hurricanes to floods, like 
that is very bad for the economy. These disasters mm-hmm. are not natural disasters. They are increasingly unnatural disasters and they are increasingly expensive. Right, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars in damage from these things. Yeah. Um, and and there are, are ways we can reduce the risk and protect ourselves. And protecting nature mm-hmm. is actually one of those ways mm-hmm. that we can protect ourselves. If we... One of the examples that like really sticks in my head is when Superstorm Sandy hit New York, already about 85% of the wetlands in New York and New Jersey had been destroyed by development. But the 15% that remained prevented over $500 million in damage. So imagine if we invested in protecting and restoring coastal wetlands how much more yeah. they could do to protect us. So yeah. there's this and win-win that we're often missing mm-hmm. when we try to see it as if conservation is just some expensive and optional thing. Right. And to your point, if you think about that, that 15% that saved $500 million in damages, imagine the jobs created by restoring wetlands yeah. That then would save billions of dollars in damage from Absolutely. that happening. And that would be billions of dollars that could be invested in economies and healthcare and companies and mm-hmm. schools. There's no bad outcome from investing in environmental solutions. Great returns. And I think the yeah. more <laughs> yes. I think the more that we can teach people about that, the the more exciting it feels. And I I don't know. I get really geeked on it. I'm thrilled. I know I, you do. I think about I'm like something. watching you take notes. You're like, uh-huh. I'm okay. like, blue jobs, blue oh jobs, God, let's pa- get it my going. My pages are covered. <laughs> so something I think a lot about, and, and it's something that's a personal experience, so I like being able to talk about it with people. Um, you know, I, I made my first TV show in North Carolina. I was in a coastal city, deeply affected by hurricanes. And our show didn't do anything about hurricanes, by the way. That's not where this is going. But what I will say is it's a television series. We employed about 120 to 160 people for nine years. That's great. Wow. You know, yeah. and, let's call it an average of 150 jobs. How amazing. Our show, because of the flight costs, because of the hotel rooms, because of the clothing bought, the restaurants called in, the catering ordered, the, the local everything picked up rentals for locations, et cetera, et cetera. The city of Wilmington did a study that showed that our show generated $259 million worth of income for the city in nine years. That was one production. Mm -hmm. I think about what, what this kind of ocean development, this kind of regenerative ocean farming, and like you said, the boats and the offshore wind creation and the engineers and the construction workers and the drivers and the restaurant. Mm-hmm. I know how much our little show did for one coastal city. I can't fathom what a true economic plan around ocean enrichment and protection, the windfall that would come for the country would just be, I'm oh, like thinking about the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many, many billions of dollars are there for the taking. Many, 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 many. And I think the way you describe the show sparks something in in my thinking, which is the show wasn't about climate change, but it could have been. 
not as a whole show, but I think one of the things that I'm hoping we start to see in TV, in movies, is that climate change isn't the topic, right? It's not a documentary, but it is the context because that's the world mm -hmm. we live in now. And if Hollywood ignores the fact that the climate is changing, will continue to change, poses great risks, we see very little scripted content that acknowledges climate change. And so mm -hmm. I don't want to watch more climate documentaries, but I would absolutely love for more rom-coms or sitcoms or dramas to acknowledge the reality of the world we live in, right? Um, mm. Whether it's an episode or a subplot or just the weather, because mm. it's so easy to think that this is not, in fact, a crisis if we don't see mm. it as part of our daily intake of information unless we're specifically looking for it, right? Um, and I, I think there's just so yeah, much that so that Hollywood can do to help us understand that, like, this is literally the air we breathe. This is the context within which mm -hmm. all dramas, fictional or real, are playing out. And so let's just yeah. acknowledge that. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I'm curious whether it's, you know, this idea that maybe we'll, I don't know, maybe we'll create some incredible scripted something exactly on this subject. I'll text you about this later. <laughs> you know, whether whether it's like a narrative that we're going to discuss. This is not on my or, vision or boards, <laughs> but I'm here for it. Um, I, I'm wondering what you think, because that that's something I can think about, because this is my industry and my line of work. Each of us, as you said earlier, has a different role to play. But what I am curious about is what each of us can do to help save what is left. You know, you, you mentioned in your in your TED talk in 2019 that only 2.2% of the ocean is protected. Mm -hmm. Clearly, we need to protect it and we need to create solutions with it, as you've just laid out so beautifully. What can we do? Do, do we need to call Congress and the Senate about this also once a week? Do we need to sign petitions? Do we need to raise money? Do we need to do all of it? What what are a couple of things that you would suggest to the listeners at home to do this week to, to put the ocean and climate change at the forefront of their action? This might sound a little bit lame, but we need to just talk about it. If we don't talk mm. about it, it's as if it weren't really a problem um, and it's not in the front of our minds, right? There is so much going on in the world that we have to... And, and the way that, you know, the TV news is failing to cover mm -hmm. these issues means that, like, mm -hmm. we have to figure it out ourselves. Because if you watch, mm -hmm. you know, the, the major TV news networks, the nightly news, like, you, you could think that there's not really a problem because the, the yeah. number of minutes that were spent on the nightly news shows talking about climate was on the order of like dozens of minutes in over the entire year, right? Not dozens of hours, dozens of minutes. And so there's this vacuum there that we need to somehow fill for ourselves. Obviously, there's a lot of other places to get information than like major network news shows, but that's how a lot of people do get their information. Um, mm -hmm. And so that means it's more on us to think about, like, what are the newspapers and other sources of journalism that we're looking at? What are the documentaries that we're watching? How are we starting to understand more deeply the role 
um, that nature and the ocean play, um, mm-hmm. which is like the foundation of life on earth. It is life on earth, right? So yeah. making sure we appreciate that we are one of millions of species on the planet, um, mm. that things can get very much worse, but they don't have to, and just regaining that perspective. But absolutely, like reaching out to your elected representatives is critical. And I, the, the one thing I would add to the way that you framed that, like call your senators, is call your city council members right? Mm. Your city council, your public utility commission, your school board, those are the groups that are deciding, do we have more bike lanes? Do we have municipal composting? How good is our recycling Mm. system? Um, How soon are we going to transition off of renewable energy? Are we going to subsidize more coal plants or are we going to invest in wind turbines? Are we going to invest in shifting the grid so that it can accommodate all these new renewable sources of energy? Are we even teaching climate change in schools? Is it part of the curriculum? Are the judges that we're electing, do they understand that this is a crisis and that it's real, right? Like the ways in which we vote and have a lot of power locally I think shouldn't be overlooked because it actually is hard for an individual to influence federal climate and environment and ocean policy, right? There's so many factors at play, but a smaller group of people using their voice can be extremely influential at the local level. And it's so gratifying to see those things shift. Seeing a bike lane go in on your street, right? Seeing more trees planted in your neighborhood, seeing your parks invested in is just so wonderful. And so we can think, like we can think and act locally in in really powerful ways. Well, and to your point, local wins can really influence national policy. Yeah, If a city launches a pilot program on restorative justice or environmental justice and it works, Mm -hmm. suddenly there's a there's a proof of concept at the national level. And so we have to remember, you're, yeah. you're, you're really reminding me of how important it is. We have to remember that if we can create change in our local environment, we can do it nationally. Yeah. We, can, yeah. we can set examples. That's the philosophy of Urban Ocean Lab too, right? Mm-hmm. We contributed to the development of the Blue New Deal policy framework but our work, Urban Ocean Lab, the title means it's a, it's a policy think tank for the future of coastal cities. And we're focusing on cities because cities can be so much more nimble. They can shift their policy more quickly than the nation can. And, and what one city does can influence what another city does, right? We can create mm-hmm. this ripple effect of adopting new policies and approaches. And a third of Americans live in coastal cities. So that's no small change if we can shift things and make sure that people are safe and healthy and we're protecting and conserving, restoring coastal ecosystems, that we are putting more proactive policies in place. Like that, that really matters if we can do that at the level Mm -hmm. of one city to another. And that those, that influence in that peer network between cities can be important but it also can trickle up, right? 
the policies that mm. cities adopt or towns adopt can then be adopted on a state level or a regional level or then a federal level. We've seen that with so many different things, whether that's the rights to vote or protections mm -hmm. or people trying to remove protections. The things that happen at a local and state level have these ripples. It's the same mm -hmm. with the right to marry whoever you love, right? That starts at a state and local level and becomes a Supreme Court and a federal issue. So I wouldn't say mm -hmm. that thinking locally is thinking small. It's creating incredibly powerful case studies for how it can mm -hmm. happen everywhere. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Things often are built from the ground up. They don't come from the top down. We have to yeah. remember that, that that's where a lot of our power comes from. Yeah, and that we have so power. I want to be really respectful of your time. I'm going to ask yeah. you two quick questions. Okay. I, I would be remiss if we didn't follow up on the book. Mm. Um, when we spoke last year, we were speaking because your book was coming out, All We Can Save, which I had the honor of reading uh, two of the essays in the collection yeah. on your audiobook. Thank you again for Thank that. Thank you I, for saying yes. Oh, I wouldn't have missed it. I definitely cried while recording because I was so <laughs> moved. I, I had met the audio engineer on Zoom that day and I was like, we don't know each other. Oh, I'm so, this is just really beautiful. Um, There's poetry so in the cool. book that gets me every time. It's like Ugh. so stunning, those words. Yeah. Gosh, it's just, it's such an unbelievable collection and it and it brings together so many thought leaders and it and it really illustrates how climate and the environment are intertwined with every single industry every single group of people mm -hmm. it's climate is us the planet is us and i i just think it's one of the best books that i've ever read and it and it made me feel like i really wanted to just double down on showing up for us and i'm curious because so many of us as your readers were so affected by it. But what what have the after effects of publishing mm. this book, this mm. bestseller, what, what has this been like for you? So when Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, my co-editor for this, for this anthology, when she and I came up with the idea, it was based on the premise that we knew so many incredible women doing very important work who have critical insights to share, and who were not going to stop doing their work to write an entire book of their own, but we could, you know, <laughs> sort of like draw an essay out of them for this collection. And so mm. a lot of the women whose work is included had never published about their own work before. Some of them were writers and journalists who are amazing, you know, amazing essayists and, and didn't really need much in the way of editing. And others were people who were trying to figure out how to share the lessons that they'd learned from decades of work for the first time mm. in this format. And so it really was an honor to help to um, curate and edit that collection with Catherine. And I think it's Im important to mention that that's just a sampling of the women doing incredible climate work, right? There are hundreds, if not thousands, of women across the country leading incredible projects and initiatives. And so one of the hardest parts of our job was to think about what are, what is the collection of stories that we can put forward that will show people how many doors there are, how many openings there are of ways to get involved and make a difference through these this diversity of examples. And so mm -hmm. we thought about diversity of 
the contributors to the anthology in a very broad sense, right? Not just race, but age and geography, you know, within the U.S. and areas of expertise mm -hmm. and their approaches and um, different religious or spiritual orientations, right? It's so important to make it clear you don't have to be a scientific expert to be a part of mm -hmm. Climate Solutions. You do not have to be an activist to be a part of Climate Solutions. You can have a job in a corporation or a small business mm -hmm. and be part of Solutions. You could be a homemaker and be a part of Solutions. You can be a citizen and be part of mm -hmm. Solutions, right? Whatever you have, you can show up. And we wanted to, to show that in the form of a book. And the subtitle is Truth, Courage, and Solutions because it's not about just having hope. And it's not about mm -hmm. a specific action or outcome. It's about how we face the climate crisis, how we like embrace the truth of what the science is telling us, like face the hard mm -hmm. and sometimes brutal and, and gut-wrenching truths of this, the dire situation we're in, muster up all of our courage to figure out like how do we keep showing up anyway, and then focus on how we can be part of solutions. And the book is not just essays, but also just stunningly beautiful poetry and illustrations. Mm. And for me, the thing that has been so remarkable is that people have reacted very strongly to the tone of the book, that it's not just a bunch of depressing facts, although those are scattered mm. throughout, and it's not just one answer, it is 40 answers to this question of like, what do we do next? How do we yeah. reconceive of the challenge? How do we find our place in the solutions? And so how people have reacted is by saying, you know, this essay really spoke to me or this group of mm -hmm. essays really changed the way I understand the role of agriculture or this group of essays helped me understand how to process my sort of like emotions around this in a productive way or understand the role mm. of the fashion industry or of finance or of art, right? Mm. And showing how multifaceted both the problem and the solutions are is what people have reacted to so deeply. And Catherine, uh, my co-editor, her idea was to create reading circles for this book because there's so much to explore and discuss. And... So there are 10 different sections of the book, 10 different groups of essays on these different themes from, from advocate to feel to nourish to persist to root to rise. Mm. And she created these group, these sets of questions and a, sort of a facilitation guide for each section of the book. And our PR team, our you know strategists who are helping us with the launch said, this is an AP class. You've created a 10-week curriculum. No one's <laughs> going to do this. And we have had over 500 people sign up to lead these reading circles, which means there are wow. thousands upon thousands of people across the U.S. who are deeply engaging with the material in this book and thinking about what it means for how who they want to show up. This? They're in and no one expected an anthology of essays about climate to become a bestseller. Like, it's unprecedented. It's one of the top-selling climate books of all time now. 
We just crossed the threshold of selling 40,000 copies. The paperback is coming out um, sometime this summer. So hopefully, you know, as it's more affordable, more people will be able to bring it home with them. And as um, it gets incorporated into more and more schools and curricula, we're just really excited that there's an opportunity to share the work and insights of dozens of women who are leading on climate as an indication of the hundreds and thousands who are doing good work, who have been left out of decision-making to date, who have not been Mm -hmm. given the funding, resources, power, access they need to make their full impact because we have a climate movement, a climate world that is, has Mm -hmm. been really controlled by white men, like so many different sectors. Mm -hmm. And that means we are missing out on the brilliance, ingenuity, creativity, problem-solving might of so the, of, a, of the majority of people on the planet. And we just can't afford that. We really need all hands on deck right now, everyone able to bring their magic to the table. So that is the way in which the book has been received as this integration of head and heart, as this mm-hmm. opportunity to find your place in solutions. And we're just really honored to be carrying forward that work through founding a nonprofit. So Catherine and I co-founded the All We Can Save Project, which is doing the work of curriculum development and community building and amplifying the work of women leading on climate who were not part of the book, but just people doing important work that others need to know about and how do we support Mm -hmm. the leaders that we already have and welcome in new ones. And it's just the most gratifying thing I could imagine spending my time on. That's so cool. I'm so happy for you all. And to everyone who's listening at home, if you haven't read the book yet, clearly you're ready to order it. And the <laughs> paperback is coming out, so let's it's go. It's right around the corner. Um, the foundation may be the answer to this next question, but you know it's my very favorite one to ask. If it's personal, professional, somewhere in between, what feels like a work in progress in your life right now? Mm. I feel like a work in progress. I know that Mm. you say this, Sophia Bush is a work in progress. 2020 was a huge year for me, right? The anthology Mm. was started essentially in January and published in September. That was a big part of my year, building up the Blue New Deal work and the Urban Ocean Lab, my other nonprofit, was a huge part of the year. Starting my podcast, How to Save a Planet, focused on climate solutions, right, with Alex Bloomberg, my co-host and co-creator over Mm. at Gimlet, and thinking through how are the ways that we can reach people with all of the opportunities to get involved with the stories that I think are most compelling. So 2020, while isolated physically from the world and the people I love and my colleagues, was an incredibly productive year professionally. And that has opened Mm. so many doors for me, including my work talking about environmental and ocean justice in a moment when so many in the environmental movement were trying to figure out how do we better show up for communities of color Mm -hmm. now that our eyes are open to just how bad racism is in the United States? And Mm -hmm. so my my writing and editing and podcast and policy work have been so public in the last year or two, so visible. Mm -hmm. I've become so much more visible. And so... I feel like this is a moment where I need to do a bit of hibernation and think about Mm. what that means to be Mm. the face of things, 
a bit more than I had mm-hmm. ever intended how I mm-hmm. want to show up, how I want to use my power and privilege and access the resources and net- networks that I'm connected to, to be really helpful in the broadest possible sense, right? When you edit an anthology or host a podcast, you unwittingly become a gatekeeper, even though mm-hmm. the whole intention is to throw the gates open, right? To blow the roof off this thing and say like, we need everyone. You can't put every mm-hmm. single person doing incredible work into one book. You can't have every right. single person as a guest on your podcast. And so right. I feel like I never thought I would have any power because I, you know, I wasn't going to be a politician or a corporate executive or a billionaire I like or a celebrity. Like I just never thought I would have any power because the ways in which we think of mm. power are actually quite narrow. But now I find that I do have some. I get to help other people. I get to mm-hmm. help shape the public discourse. And so I'm very much a work in progress in like grappling with what that means for how I want to show up and how I can be most useful and generous and use the opportunities that are offered to me to open up doors and not close them. I love that. Thank you for coming today. Thanks for having me. 